Well, good evening, Hellos Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, if you're new, um, or perhaps if you're new to the Bible, and put it that way, if you're new to the Bible, know that there's some Bibles provided in the pews in front of you to use. Feel free to grab one of those, uh, use that. If you're unfamiliar with how to navigate the Bible, because it is a big book, know, know, know that every book or every Bible comes with a table of contents, and don't sweat using that table of contents to find your way to a book and to a chapter and to the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight. So Hebrews chapter 11 Uh, When you get there, put your finger on verse 17. We're going to be looking at the passage our friend Michelle read for us a moment ago. And if you do not own a Bible, know that there are some Bibles on the table in the foyer in the back. Let it be our gift to you. Grab one of those on your way out and let it, again, take it. If you are in relationship with someone and you're having spiritual conversations with a with a person who's not familiar with the Bible, they do not have a Bible, grab one of those off the table and gift it to them. We want to see as many men and women encountering Christ in the Scriptures directly for themselves as possible. We want to be Bible readers, Bible students, and so that's what we want to get God's Word in the hands of as many lives as possible. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be picking up on our series, continuing our series titled Stories of Faith. But before we dive into that, let me voice one more prayer for us and then we will, we will proceed. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles in this moment, would you open up our hearts to receive your grace and your goodness and all that you would have for us in the scriptures. We pray that you would show us Christ. I ask God that by the time we are done this evening, that our hearts would be more enthralled with the beauty of Jesus than with any other inferior beauty in this world. God, we ask and we pray that you would do the kind of work that only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit through your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews chapter 11. We've been going through this series titled Stories of Faith, looking at the lives of various men and women who, have, uh, who lived by faith, whose lives bear, bore witness to the faithfulness of God and in, in the forging of a glorious future for his people. And we've looked at a lot of stories, ranging from Abel all the way to Abraham. And we've looked at Abel, uh, Abraham a couple of times, but we're going to come back to Abraham here in verse 17 because he receives the most attention in Hebrews chapter 11. And the reason why Abraham receives so much attention is because Abraham is commonly referred to as the father of faith. He is kind of the the paradigm example of what the life of faith looks like. And the reason why I love that so much is because if you study the life of Abraham closely in the book of Genesis, you're going to see that his faith developed over time. That he didn't just immediately start, uh, or he didn't just fire on all faith cylinders every moment of his life. There were times when he kind of stumbled and bumbled his way in obedience to God, in response to his grace, living by faith. But then there are other moments where, yes, Abraham thrived. He made choices that glorified God and advanced God's plans and ambitions in the world. And so I love Abraham as an example to us because although he's kind of the paradigm and the father of faith, he is so not so much because of his perfection, as he is by his persistence. It wasn't that he was perfectly faithful in every moment of every day, but it is a persistent man who walked by faith, and when he messed up, he would admit it, he would go to God and grow from it. This is why when you jump into verse 17, you have a sentence uh, presented to us describing uh, some things that Abraham went through in order to build his faith or to strengthen his faith or to develop his faith. You see this in verse 17 where it says, By faith Abraham, when he was, here it is, tested. 
Now, I don't know how that sentence lands on you to learn that Abraham, who lived by faith, his father of faith, was tested. I don't know if you're curious, maybe, well, who was the professor divvying out the tests? Who was the one uh, testing Abraham in his life? Well, if you jump back to the story in Genesis that this passage is most immediately referring to, that story is found in Genesis chapter 22, and it concerns him and his relationship with his unique son, Isaac. And in the very beginning of that chapter, we are told that God tested Abraham. So what we're being cued into here in verse 17 is that the God that we serve, the God that we worship, the God who would send Jesus to live and to die and to rise again on our behalf for our salvation, this is a God whose grace towards us produces a faith that requires testing. That if you and I are going to grow and develop in our faith and in our journey with Jesus in this world, we will, without doubt, be tested by God in various ways, shapes, and forms. And I hope that doesn't surprise you. I hope that doesn't kind of dislodge your understanding of who God is, wondering, well, why would God test us? Why would he put us through situations and circumstances? And perhaps that question of why, and if you have pushback against that, it's maybe it's maybe tied to the fact that you don't understand a distinction, an important distinction between being tested by God and being tempted to sin. It's one thing to say that God tests his children. It's a whole other ballgame to say that God tempts his children. And one thing that you and I can never say about the God that we serve is that he tempts us. Our God does not tempt his children, but he does test us. He does work in our lives in ways to develop our faith and to strengthen our intimacy with him and our awareness of who he is and what he is about in the universe. I'll give you an example of a passage that kind of draws the distinction between testing and tempting. You see this in James chapter 1, for example. James chapter 1, verse 12. Listen to what the writer says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, get this, let no one say, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You see, temptation comes from another source, right? Temptation comes from the one who the Bible refers to as Satan or the evil one, and he loves to, to dangle enticing treats to us, trying to get us to bite into them the way that he did to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And in combination of, of Satan and then our flesh, our, our desires that are distorted by sin, we kind of give in to temptation. But the thing about temptation is that temptation, the goal and the agenda of temptation in our lives is always our failure. Satan never tempts you because he wants you to improve. Satan never tempts you because he wants you to develop in a progressive fashion. No, Satan always tempts you to destroy you. He always tempts you to take life from you. His goal in tempting the people of God who are living by faith is their failure, is their destruction, is their demise. This is why we never want to say that God tempts his children. God doesn't tempt his children, but he does test his children. And so the difference between temptation and testing is this. Temptations are designed for our failure, but testing is designed by God for our development. It's designed by God for our growth, for our advancement in the faith, so that we may be strengthened in our understanding of who God is, in our understanding of what God is about in the world. He tests us to make us strong. So when you think about this dynamic of God testing his children, he's not testing us the way... Uh, 
You know, to, he's not giving us a test that is pass or fail where you've got to make the grade in order to advance and to graduate on to the next class. That's not the type of test we're talking about. It's not like my math teacher who always gave us tests and I never passed them and I always left that class feeling defeated and deflated, not knowing if I would ever be able to go to college and do the things that I really wanted to do with my life. I was more of a words guy than a math guy, so I struggled with math. And so it's not that type of test. When you think about God testing his children, I want you to imagine the athlete who's just ran six miles, but there's more to be drawn out of that person. The athlete who's run six miles, but they can go seven. They can go eight. And so they're testing themselves or they're being challenged in that moment to go further, to go further than they thought they could go and to do more than they thought they could go. And in the end, they're stronger because they met the challenge. They raised to the test. That's the dynamic we want to think about when we consider, Abraham, uh, when we consider God testing our faith. All of God's tests are designed to draw stuff out of us, to draw faith out of us, to draw affections out of us, to draw strength out of us, to draw stuff out of us, and then to put us in a healthier position in our relationship with him in contrast with our relationship with the world in which we live. You'll see this again in James chapter 1 when you consider verse 2 in that same chapter. James writes some strange words when he says, Count it all joy, my, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So tests and trials are designed to draw stuff out of us and to develop God's ways within us so that we become men and women that God wants us to be in the world that is. So anytime that God tests us, he's testing us for our good. He's testing us for our development. Now, when you first kind of step into a situation or a circumstance where you sense, well, maybe God, I'm going through a circumstance and I'm not really sure how to make uh, much sense of this trial, what's coming out of me in the immediate reaction to this situation isn't faith. It's faithlessness. It isn't good stuff. It may be bad stuff. And you're wondering, what am I to make of the, the bad stuff that's coming out of me in response to these tests or these circumstances that I'm going through? Well, you keep pressing in, understanding that God, if God's drawing out bad stuff, it's because he intends to replace it with good stuff. I'll give you this. Or one example is, is drawn from the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, there's a situation where God comes through and he would redeem the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery. And after redeeming them from Pharaoh's heavy-handedness, he then leads them towards the promised land. And you know that they didn't just step out of Egypt and into the promised land, but instead they wandered for 40 years. And many times in the book of Exodus, we read that God was testing his children. God was testing Israel. He was trying to do a work within them to prepare them for the place that he had for them. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 would describe kind of the motivation behind God in doing this. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2, And you shall remember the whole, way of the, the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to what? To know what is in your heart, to bring some stuff out of you. And if that stuff that's coming out is bad stuff, he's going to replace it with his stuff. He's drawing it out of us testing us to know what is in our heart, whether we would keep his commandments or not. One way I like to try to illustrate this is thinking about my daughter Delaney. 
who's now seven years old, but when she was four years old, uh, I got her a kitchen, a little mini kitchen, uh, because she was really into cooking, and she was really into doing everything that she saw me and her mom doing in the kitchen, and so she wanted a little mini kitchen so she could participate in the fun, and, and normally I don't like buying these kinds of gifts for my kids because they require assembly, and I don't like assembly. The screwdrivers are too small, the screws are too small, it just, it's, it brings a lot of bad stuff out of me that needs to be replaced with God's stuff, and so I would give her this gift, and and she was so excited, she wanted, to, she wanted it put together immediately. So I'm taking all these parts out of the box, and I'm getting the instruction manual out, and I'm unfolding it, looking at the blueprint, looking at the design, trying to figure out a way forward. And, but one thing about Delaney is that she's also very independent. She's very independent, and she's very confident and self-assured. She believes she can do a lot more uh, at her age of four than, than she was probably capable of doing. And so she insisted, no, no, Daddy, I want to put it together. I want to do it. And so she would come over and she would grab the screwdriver out of my hand and then she would grab the instructions that she couldn't read, but she insisted that she'd be able to do it. And, and I'm thinking, okay, um, I decided in that moment I'll, I'll test her then, right? She, she needs to discover some things about herself that, that need changing. And so I said, okay, Delaney, have at it. This is your show. You do it. I said, but I want you to know that while you're working on the kitchenette that I'm, I'm right here. And if at any point you need my help, all you have to do is ask. And she just kind of went about her business, kind of ignored my, my word to her in that moment. And I left the kitchen. I was gone for about 10 minutes. I came back, complete chaos. Not only did she not put the kitchen together, she kind of made it worse than it was before. And, and, uh, and what she discovered in that moment was, yes, she really did need dad's help, right? That was the test I was designing for her. I wanted her to learn in that moment that she wasn't as independent as she thought she was. I wanted her to learn that her father was there ready and willing to help her. All she had to do is ask. I wanted to draw some bad stuff out of her so I could replace it with the affirmation of my love, the affirmation of my presence, the affirmation of my power. That was a test, so to speak. And that's the type of test that God takes his children through time and time and time again in this world, seeking to draw out stuff from us and to replace it with his stuff. This is the goal of his testing, I believe, in all of our lives, in every situation. So anytime that we find ourselves being tested by God, we discover areas that need attention, don't we? Areas that need attention, areas that need development, areas that need grace, Areas where our awareness of God's goodness needs to improve. Areas where we understand that God is more satisfying than that which we were seeking satisfaction in, even if it was a good thing. So God tests us to draw that stuff out, and he tests us to replace that stuff with his ways and his wonders. So anytime you're being tested by God, you may discover that you're, you're way too independent. You may be in a situation and a circumstance right now where you are far too independent, and God is rocking your world right now to convince you, look, you are not as independent and as strong as you think you are. Or maybe you're in a situation right now where you're discovering where your faith is being misplaced, that you've hitched your faith to the wrong Savior. You've hitched your faith to the wrong God in this world. You've hitched your faith, put it in the wrong place, and so God is testing you to shake that loose so that your faith might be uprooted from the bad God and rerooted in the good God who's for you in every moment of every day, the only God who's capable of redeeming your life and changing your life and satisfying your life, the only God of grace that exists in the entire universe who's infinitely more satisfying than any other person, place, or thing in the world that is. 
So I don't know what situation or circumstance you may find yourself in this moment, but I have no doubt in my mind that many of us right now are being tested by God in ways designed for our ultimate good and ultimately designed for his glory, which is what we're going to see in Abraham's story. Everything that God is doing in Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 2 is designed to advance his glory in the world, to, to move his redemptive agenda further into, uh, further downfield, so to speak, to, to push the world closer to the coming of Jesus and, the under, and to understand better what the coming of Jesus represents and what the coming of Jesus would do for all who would trust in him. And so this whole testing that God is putting Abraham through, yes, it's designed for his good. But it's also designed for the good of many, many, many others who would hear his story and who would see how his story shows us, shows us Christ. And so you have this testing. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, but what was the test? Notice in the next phrase. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, that's a reference, again, to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Well, if you want to turn back there, you can. I'll read a a few portions of Genesis chapter 22. but, But here's how that story begins. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, get this, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's a strange test, to be sure. It's a test that you read that story, you hear God's commands, and you're scratching your head wondering, what in the world is God doing? Why would he tell a guy to bring his only son or his unique son up a mountain and offer him up as a burnt offering? What is going on with that type of command? And I know that there's lots of questions that are popping up in your head right now related to that story. And and if we were dealing with Genesis 22 squarely, we would deal with all of it. But let me just... Uh, address a couple of things about uh, Genesis chapter 22. When God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, that command in and of itself wasn't foreign to Abraham's psyche. Abraham was called out of a land and into the promised land. He was brought into a new relationship with the creator of the universe who was taking him to a new land where he was going to form a new people to accomplish a new purpose in a fallen and broken world. But the land that Abraham was a part of before receiving that call of grace was a land where child sacrifice, quite honestly, was quite common. So it wasn't bizarre in Abraham's mind for him to be called by a deity to sacrifice his son. But what is unique about the story of Genesis chapter 22, and I'll just spoil it for you right now, is that Abraham, God doesn't let Abraham sacrifice his son. And you'll, we'll talk about some of the reasons why God intervenes and he doesn't allow Abraham to go through with it. One of the reasons is because Abraham, God wanted to deconstruct Abraham's worldview. A worldview that said the deities and the gods were dependent ultimately upon the offerings that human beings bring to them. And so God puts Abraham through this test to show him, look, I'm going to deconstruct that worldview and I'm going to show you what my way is really about. And my way isn't so much about what you can provide me with, but with what I can provide you with. So he gets to the top of the mountain in Genesis chapter 22, and he, he's about to slaughter his son Isaac, and, and he looks, and, or an angel of the Lord appears and interrupts it, intervenes, doesn't let him do it, and then he turns his attention and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And that ram would then take Isaac's place on the altar. Because our relationship with God is never dependent upon the sacrifices we make. Our relationship with God isn't ever dependent upon the offerings we provide him with. 
Our relationship with God, this is the gospel. Our relationship with God is always dependent upon the sacrifice he makes, the offering he provides, what he gives us, not so much what we give him. And so there's a lot more we could say about that, but understand that this was an intense test because God was calling for Abraham to give him his only son, Isaac. And Abraham obeyed. Abraham went through with it. He offered up Isaac. He did what God had commanded him to do. Now, to say that Abraham did what God commanded him to do does not mean that Abraham, I think, it doesn't mean that, God's, that Abraham never experienced some type of crisis. I think the reason why Genesis chapter 22 points out that this was the son that Abraham loved kind of signals the fact that this, was, this created a crisis in his soul, not because he was surprised by the command as much as it was he was being called to give his only son the object of his affections. And so I want us to think about God's test in this way. So God tests the faith of his children. And every time he tests the faith of his children, his tests will inevitably create crises in our lives. We'll create crises in our affections. We'll create crises in our loyalties. We'll create crises in our allegiances. No doubt this is what Abraham is going through, which is why I think those details are provided in Genesis 22. No doubt this is what Abraham is going through when you consider uh, the full story of Abraham's relationship with Isaac and how Isaac was a miracle baby given to Abraham and his wife Sarah when they were far past uh, childbearing years and they've never been able to have a child themselves. And, and then when God decides to break through that and give them one, they're already pushing 100 years old. So he's kind of a miracle baby. He was a gift from God. He was a blessing from God. He was a source of love, laughter, and joy to their lives. And yet now God is coming. He's saying, I want you to give me that which I've given you. I want you to give me this child who is the source of your love, who is the object of your love, and the source of so much laughter in your home. Think about Isaac's name. Isaac's name literally means he laughs. So when God tests Abraham and he calls him into this thing, he's testing him saying, he's saying, I want you to give me the source of your laughter. I want you to give me the source of your joy. That can create a crisis in our lives, right? When God's commands go after our various sources of love, our, very, our various objects of love, our various sources of joy and laughter. I mean, you could think about it this way in your own life. Is there anything in your life right now, just think about it, is there anything in your life right now that if you were to lose today, you would never laugh again? Is there anything in your life right now that if you were to lose today, you believe you could never laugh again? This is essentially the test that's going down in Abraham's life. This is the crisis that he's, that he's going through. In order to give Isaac to the Lord, it risks the death of his joy. I don't know if you've been journeying with Jesus very long, but you don't have to journey with Jesus very long to understand that many times our obedience to Jesus, many times our obedience to Jesus at first glance looks like the death of joy. It looks like the death of laughter. Many times you hear Jesus say things like, well, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Self-denial doesn't sound like fun. We live in a culture that says the exact opposite. Gratify yourself. So if you're going to step into self-denial, at first glance, it looks like the death of joy. It looks like the death, death of laughter. It looks like the death of pleasure. But he says to us, if you're going to follow me, uh, you must deny yourself and then take up your cross daily and do so. 
And that whole imagery of taking up your cross daily and follow Jesus is an image of death, saying every day there are things that you must die to. Obedience always at first glance looks like death, the death of joy. Here is what Abraham's learning this as he's been called to give his son Isaac to the Lord and his obedience is threatening to kill his joy. And I know, I know there are Christians in this room who struggle with that very same thing. You're not so sure you can obey God because you think if you obey God, you're going to be miserable. You think if you obey God, you're going to lose joy, you're going to lose laughter, you're going to lose pleasure. But what you're going to discover in this story is that the exact opposite is is true. Is that when you obey God, even if that obedience looks like the death of your joy, understand that it's always moving towards resurrection. Understanding that it's always moving towards new life. It's always moving towards new joy. It's always moving towards a deeper apprehension of who God is and what God wants to be in your life and for your life. It's always a call to something better. And the beauty of the gospel says that life always comes from death. In fact, our very salvation is, exists because Jesus went to the cross to what? Die. But when he died on the cross, did he stay dead? No, he burst out of the grave three days later. He rose from the grave. Death leads to life in the Christian, in the Christian faith. When you die to yourself, it's so that you can find yourself in Jesus. And there's more life, there's more pleasure, there's more laughter, there's more joy in Jesus than in any other person, place, or thing in the universe, including good things. Including God's gifts to you. Including God's Isaacs in your life where he's come through for you and he's given you gifts that are to be received with gratitude and thanksgiving. Think about your friendships, think about your community, think about your family, think about your jobs, think about your food, your clothing, your shelter, all the gifts that God gives you that are good gifts in and of themselves. But understand that in the giving of good gifts, God never intends for those good gifts to replace his presence in our lives. That those good gifts are never to replace him from being the chief source of our love, our laughter, and our joy. And anytime good things replace God, take God's place in that regard in our lives, he's going to go to work. He's going to go to work to test us, to refine us, to draw that out of us so that we discover just how dissatisfying even the best gifts God gives us in this world can be. You wonder why you feel like life as a Christian in this world so oftentimes seems mundane. It so oftentimes seems ritualistic and routine. You wonder why life in this world kind of feels that way so often. Well, could it be that God is pressing you into the mundane so that you are so that you discover just how dissatisfying even the best parts of life in this world are ultimately can ultimately be? Maybe he's drawing some Isaacs out of your life, saying, I really need you to give me everything. I need you to give you, I need you to give me or offer up to me in response to my grace in your life. In response to my goodness towards you, I want you, I want you to give me everything, not just a part of you. I, want you. I want you to give me everything so that I can be all that I want to be for you. This is essentially what he's doing in Abraham's life when he calls him to offer up Isaac. And that act of obedience does look like, in, at first glance, the death of his joy. So let me ask you this. If there is something in your life right now that you think if you lose it, then you'll never laugh again. What's keeping you from 
from turning that over to the Lord? What is keeping you from committing that to God and trusting God with those things that you feel like you can't lose and still be happy? What's what's holding you back? A.W. Tozer would put it this way in his book, The Pursuit of God, when he kind of draws from the story of Abraham and he says, you know, so many times we are hindered from giving up our treasures to the Lord out of fear for their safety. It's ironic. We don't want to give up everything to God because we think we can take care of it better or that our life will fall apart if we lose it. So we think that those things are more safe with us. He goes on. This is especially true when those treasures are loved relatives and friends. But we need have no such fears. Our Lord came not to destroy but to save. Everything is safe which we commit to him and nothing is really safe which is not so committed. Everything is safe that is committed to the Lord, and nothing is safe that is not so committed. Now you consider the imagery of Genesis chapter 22 and what, what's going down in Abraham's life. He's, he's told to take his, the source of his joy, the source of his laughter, the hope of his future, everything that was wrapped up in Isaac, and to offer it up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now the imagery of a burnt offering is, is fairly dramatic. Burnt offerings in the Old Testament, there were usually two phases. If you were going to give a burnt offering to the Lord, you would bring your lamb or your animal sacrifice and you would slaughter it, shedding its blood, and the blood would represent you know, the, the atonement for sins, forgiveness of sins. But you would then take the, the, the corpse and you would put it on the altar and set it on fire. And you would literally burn all of it. It's a total consumption. This is the idea. When, Abraham, when God calls Abraham to offer up Isaac, he's not so much going after Isaac as he is going after Abraham. I want all of you. I want every aspect of who you are. Isaac was an extension of himself. And to give Isaac was to give himself. And so God is saying, look, the only appropriate response to my activity in your life, my grace in your life, my goodness towards you, is to give me all of you. And this is precisely the conclusion that Paul would make in the book of Romans. When Paul is talking about Christianity and he's explaining the gospel, And he's pointing out that God gave his son to us. He gave his very best. Jesus was the very extension of God in the world. God giving himself to us in Jesus. Then he comes to Romans chapter 12 verse 1. And what does he say is the most reasonable response you can give to this gospel, to this God of grace, to this God of goodness? He says now in response to this, I want you to offer up your bodies. Offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Give him everything in response to what he's given you in Jesus. Trust him with everything because he's given you everything in Jesus. So here you have this test in Abraham's life that created a crisis. And perhaps there are tests you're going through right now that's creating a crisis. And you're not sure you can respond to God with that type of offering. You're not sure if you can respond to God with, by giving him everything about you without reservation and without remainder, you're, you're hesitant. And if you are, I think it's due to, it, it may be due to this, this perspective. I bet if I were to walk up to each and every one of you and ask you the question, do you believe God is good? I believe most of you would look at me and say, yes, I believe God is good. Chances are you learned that at some point in time in your life. You heard people talk about the goodness of God. Maybe you read a systematic theology textbook. And that systematic theology textbook told you that God is good. But the challenge of the story of Abraham and the testing and the crises that God's tests create in our lives isn't a challenge of whether or not we believe God is good. 
The challenge is, do we believe God is better? That's a different question. It's one thing to believe God is good. It's a whole other ballgame to believe God is better. I believe the difference between saving authentic faith in Christ, the difference between saving authentic faith in Christ and an inauthentic or an imposter faith in Christ, I believe that question exposes the difference. I don't believe it is enough for someone to say, I believe God is good. I believe saving faith says God is better. So I'm going to give my entire self to Jesus, believing he's better for me than any other person, place, or thing. I'm going to give myself to Jesus, believing he's better than any other pleasure I can have in this life, even good gifts from my God. Even his best gifts to me, can't they pale in comparison to the gift of Jesus and all that God will be for us and him. And so if you're having a hard time, if you're holding things back, chances are you may be one who believes God is good, but you don't believe he is better. Perhaps you're like the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. The story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 is in many ways uh, a lot like the story of Abraham. There's a moment where this rich young ruler who's highly successful in his career, who has a strong reputation in society because of the wealth he's accumulated and because he's a good guy, he's a nice guy. He believes God is good. He worships in the temple. He's a respected member of society, believing in the goodness of God. But there comes a moment where Jesus steps onto the horizon of his life and he calls for more, wanting to draw more out of him and to develop more within him, saying, hey, I want you to go sell all of your possessions and give your money to the poor and then come follow me. The rich young ruler heard that command. He heard that call, but he did not respond positively. He loved his stuff so much that he could not see Jesus in that light. And so rather than obeying Jesus' command, he shrunk back. He left saddened, it says. He was sad as he walked away from Jesus. He wasn't responding with everything because he didn't believe God in Jesus was better than his stuff. He wasn't prepared to offer up everything to God. And then Jesus would turn to his disciples and they would have a conversation. And it's an interesting conversation because Peter and the rest of the disciples would ask Jesus or remind Jesus, hey, remember us? We've abandoned everything to follow you. We've given up homes. We've given up you know, our comforts. We, we've made a lot of changes in our lives to follow you. And, and he's reminding, they're reminding Jesus of that. And listen to what Jesus says in response. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, yes, and in the age to come, what? And in the age to come, eternal life. What is Jesus telling his disciples? He's saying, look, guys, you will never give more. You will never give up more than what my father will give to you in his kingdom. You will never give up more than what God will give you in his kingdom, in his presence, in his promises, in his pleasures. You will never give up more than God. And so whatever you believe you're sacrificing or offering up the Lord, whatever you think that your heart is attached to, that you think, if I lose this, I will never laugh again, even committing that over to the Lord and offering up to him, saying, Lord, I want to look through this to you. I don't want to just look at whatever this is. I want my affections to move through this gift and be attached ultimately to you. Whatever that is, even if something happens in your life and that is taken from you, There is still laughter to be had. 
There is still joy to be experienced. There is still the deep things of God that you can be drawn into as a result of what God is up to in your life. And the way God can flip the script on every situation or circumstance or offering that you give, that you give him. You and I will never give, outgive God. We'll never give up more than he's willing to give us or that he will give us in his kingdom. Now you come back to Hebrews chapter 11 and you consider this test. Offered up Isaac, but then we read on. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. There's that language again. Verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this is, this is where the crisis really begins to ratchet up in Abraham's worldview, in Abraham's perspective on God. Because now he's, he's remembering what God said earlier in Genesis chapter 20, 21, verse 12, where God gave Isaac to him in fulfillment of promises God made, made to him. And so to sacrifice Isaac would be, in his mind, to sacrifice the future of God's plan and purposes. It would be to say that God's gone back on his word, that he's not going to be faithful to his promises. And so Abraham had to step back in that moment and wonder, what am I going to do to this? Because God's commands seem to be contradicting God's promises, and how am I to make sense of all this? And no doubt there are times in our lives when it seems as though God's commands of us are going to lead us out from underneath the path of blessing where God may call us to do something and it may put us in a precarious position where we're wondering, well, how will God show himself faithful if I do that? How will God come through for me if I go there, if I spend my life doing that? It seems like if I move in that direction, I'm going to miss out on so much and his commands seem to be leading me out from under his blessings or the way I think his blessings should be in my life. I'll give you an example. Suppose you're a, you're a, single guy and you want to get married you love Jesus you're following Jesus you meet a you meet a gal who doesn't love Jesus who isn't interested in Jesus but you're very attracted to her you're emotionally connected and you want to pursue a relationship with her but then you open up let's say 1 Corinthians 7 and you start reading the New Testament and 1 Corinthians 7 says hey don't be unequally yoked in other words if you're following Jesus don't consciously marry a a non-believer, someone who isn't moving in the same direction as you because your lives, it seems, won't be going in the same direction. So you have this command from God, but you think, well, it seems like this relationship is a blessing. And doesn't God honor marriage? Doesn't he want us to get married? Doesn't he like family and marriage and all that good stuff? And so we think, okay, there's a command, don't be unequally yoked, but isn't marriage good? Isn't that a blessing from God? Shouldn't we pursue that? And all of a sudden, you have a conflict. You have the command of God. Then you have, if you follow that command, it may take you out from underneath God's blessing. That's a similar type of thing that Abraham is going through. And if you walk with Jesus long enough, you're going to find yourself in those types of crises as well. And you have to decide whether or not what you're, how you're going to view your God in those moments. Are you going to believe he is capable of coming through for you even if you make a decision that might, or even if you choose, especially if you choose obedience over disobedience. And if obedience takes you out from under a perception of a blessing in your life. You have to come to a conclusion. You have to do something. You have to respond in those moments. Because here Abraham is called to respond because God's commands seem to be contradicting his promises and and so the question then becomes, how did Abraham respond? How did he respond in this moment? I think if you keep reading, you begin to see verse 19. 
It says he what? He considered. He began to think. He began to consciously remember who his God is and what his God is like. There are some scholars who say that you see Abraham considering the moment he, when he takes Isaac, he takes a few other guys with him and they go to the Mount of Moriah, they hike up the mountain, or they get ready to go to the place of sacrifice. And then Abraham turns to some of the other guys who are with them who aren't going to go to the top. And he says, hey guys, we're going to go up here, we're going to do this thing. And, and then he says, we will return back to you. We will come back to you. So there's some who say, well, maybe Abraham was thinking that even if he offered up Isaac, that he would get him back. And that tends to be what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out, right? He considered what? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So how did Abraham respond? He considered who his God was, and he considered what his God was capable of. Perhaps he remembered, you know, this entire universe was created out of nothing. Perhaps he remembered how his wife Sarah's womb was barren, and yet God created life in her womb not long before. Maybe he's remembering these manifestations of God's presence and his power and his provision and his goodness, and he's saying, okay, God's telling me to do this. I'm going to do it. It doesn't seem to make much sense, but I know my God is able. If my God can bring the whole universe into being out of nothing, surely he can bring my son Isaac back from the grave. And so what did he do? He considered who his God was, and then he moved forward in faith. So if you find yourself in a crisis right now wondering how am I going to obey God's commands, especially if I feel like doing so is going to take me out from under what I think is a blessing and what I think is good and even in some ways God honoring to God. What, what do I do in that moment? Well, you step back and you consider. Think about who your God is. Think about what your God is capable of. Remember that he is more powerful and more precious than you've ever dared dreamed. Consider who your God is. This is what Abraham did. And we know that he considered this, which is why he proceeded to walk up the mountain and to do what God was telling him to do, even if at first glance it looked like the death of his joy, even if at first glance it looked like the death of his future. He considered who God was. And then let's see how the story unfolded. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 9, as they got to the top of the mountain, this is what went down. When they, referring to Abraham and Isaac, came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Graphic language. He's got the knife up. He's about to slaughter his son. Check it. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Why? For now I know that you fear God. Now I know where your heart is. Now I know where that you revere God above all else, that you are trusting God. He's saying, now I know you fear God, seeing, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then after saying that, verse 13, look what goes down. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. He lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of in the place of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. He discovered God's intended purpose to provide the offering for him and for all of his descendants. This crisis ultimately led to him obeying 
God's command even when it didn't make sense and it put him in a position to be the first recipient of this object lesson of the gospel where God provides a ram to take the place of his son on the altar. God saying to Abraham, look, I'm unlike any God you're familiar with. Every God you're familiar with wants your offerings to count for your relationship with me. But I'm here to say my offering is what's going to account for your relationship with me. I've come to provide the ram. I'm going to provide the offering. I'm going to provide for my people. And as I do so, I'm going to fulfill my promises. This is the God that we have. This is the God that we serve. This is the uniqueness of our God who promises to provide. So what did Abraham do in this story? He He considered that God was able, and then what did he do? He looked to the ram. He looked to the direction of what God had provided for him in that moment. And what do you do when you're tested, when you're in a crisis moment? What do you do? You consider who your God is. You consider what your God is capable of, and then you look to the lamb. You turn your attention to the one that God would send into the world to take our place, to die in our stead. You'll consider God's promises in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, when we are told that God, who did not spare his own son the way he spared Isaac, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How then, how then will he not with him graciously give us all things? If God has given us Jesus, how then can we not trust him to meet every other need we have in this world and in the next? So we look to the Lamb. We turn our attention to Jesus. We read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Every promise that God makes to us, we claim on the basis of Jesus. We claim because of Jesus. We look to the Lamb. We consider God's provision of Jesus. And as we look to the Lamb, what begins to happen is we find ourselves assured We find our faith shored up and strengthened of thinking, okay, this situation is terrible. I don't enjoy it, but I know my God is good. I know my God is better. I know God sent his son Jesus into the world to meet all of my needs, so I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to trust Jesus. Essentially, we're going to look to the lamb. And what's interesting in chapter 22, immediately after Abraham looks to the ram and he sees God's provision and he makes this declaration about the Lord, verse 15, we read that the angel of the Lord then called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, listen to what he's doing, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God assures Abraham that his promises will be fulfilled. So in moving in obedience, living by faith, Abraham discovers the assurance of his faith, that the assurance that he receives that God will fulfill his promises, he will do what he says he's going to do, and that is true no matter what situation or circumstance you are in that may contradict that or may appear to go against that. What is true is that God is surely going to fulfill his promises. And it is this dynamic that would then lead the rest of, it would kind of cascade and in an awareness of God's promises and an awareness of God's blessings throughout Abraham's family. This is why when you turn the corner in verse 20, 20, you have Isaac invoking future blessings on his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Then you have Jacob, when he's dying, blessing each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
It is verse 22, by faith Joseph now, Abraham's great-grandson at the end of his life, made, making mention of the exodus of the Israelites and giving directions concerning his bones. In other words, you see a cascading effect taking place as the promises of God's blessings, the assurance of God's blessings, the assurance of God's favor are being transferred from one generation to the next, from one generation to the next. Abraham to his son, then to his grandson, then to his great-grandson. And then there's an interesting moment there in verse 22 where you have Joseph at the end of his days, he's living in Egypt, but he knows that the people of Israel, God's people belong in Israel, the promised land that God promised to give Abraham. And so after he made, he made some estate planning, say, when I die, you can put my bones in a box, and when you leave this place, carry me with you. I want to go to the place of promise. I want to go to the place of blessing. I want you to know for sure that God's promises will be fulfilled. So he instructs the people of Israel to take his bones with them when they leave Egypt. Now when you think about the Exodus, you think about the people of Israel being led out of Egypt and being delivered from slavery and brought into the promised land. How did they get there? Well, there was a night, right? There was a night when death was coming and death judgment was coming on every home in the land of Egypt. But God had spoken and he told Israel to do something crazy. He says, hey, I want anyone who, I want you, I want you to get your, your best lamb and I want you to sacrifice that lamb, take the, lamb, the blood of that lamb and then apply it to the doorpost. And when judgment comes in Israel, wherever the, wherever the, the judge sees blood, he's gonna pass over it. And after he passes over that home, you're free to live, you're free to go. In other words, what Israel did in that moment was the same thing Abraham did in Genesis chapter 2. Abraham looked to a ram, the people of Israel looked to the lamb. And once again, God began to advance his, his redemptive agenda, highlighting and prepping people's consciousness and awareness of what Jesus would do for us when he would step into the world, the lamb of God, who would die in our place to take away our sins. But the Lamb of God, who though he died, you know, you know he did not stay dead. You know that three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, which was why you and I can live our lives saying, yes, there are times when obedience may look like death, but obedience will always end in resurrection. It will always end in life. It will always end in redemption. That's the promise we have from our God. That's why we can obey him, even when it's tough and challenging, even when he's doing deep heart work to detach us from drawing our ultimate affections and ultimate joy and pleasure from even good things that he has blessed our lives with. We can let him do that because we know that obedience and the work that he's doing within us always leads to resurrection. It always leads to life. This means we can journey through this world knowing that ultimately we have nothing to lose. We have nothing to fear, not even death itself. You come back to Hebrews 11 and you consider how verse 17 through 22, the theme of faith unites all of this together, but there's another theme that unites all of this together in this passage. Not only is it the theme of faith, but it is the theme of death, right? And if there's any threat that you might think, anything in the world that threatens your faith and the promises of God is the prospect of dying. It is the death of a loved one. It is, the, it is your death, uh, is death itself in your life seems to threaten God's promises in our lives. But if you look at this text, death is the common denominator. You have in Abraham's story someone who needs to die. Abraham needed to die to, to that which he was tempted to treasure and to put above his God and his affections. Then you have two men who were, on the, who were about to die, right? 
So they're, he's blessing, they're blessing their sons. But then you come to Joseph, who's already dead. So there's one theme that stretches from Abraham to Joseph, and that is the theme of death. And this passage is constructed to remind us that not even death can threaten to upend God's promises to us. Not even death can hinder us from enjoying our God and being with him forever. When we know this, it does something to our souls. When we know this, it does something to our lives so that all of a sudden we live kind of bulletproof. We live kind of bulletproof. There's really nothing that can hit those who get this, who are trusting in this. The other day I was hanging out with my family and we were getting ready to have a family movie night and we were trying to decide what movie to watch. And Delaney knows that I'm a C.S. Lewis fan and she knows that, that I'm a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia series and in fact, I've already read her, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I did that a couple of years ago. And, and so when we were deciding what movie to watch, she said, hey, can we watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? And I looked at her mom, and I'm like, yeah. And then her mom was like, I don't know. And so Kim and I started to talk about it. And we weren't sure if Delaney was ready for some of the intense visual imagery that exists in that movie, if, if some of it might scare her. And so we began to talk about that. And, and as we did, Delaney overheard the conversation, and she was convinced she was ready to watch the movie, and so she stepped up, and listen to what she told us. She said, Mom, I won't be scared because I already know how the story ends. I won't be scared because I already know how the story ends. And then, quote, when you know how the story ends, the scary parts aren't so scary. When you know how the story ends, the scary parts aren't so scary. This is the perspective, this is the hope that we can have as we journey with Jesus in the world that is. As we walk by faith, as our faith is tested, as we reach crises, crisis moments in our lives, we can press on knowing that the scary parts aren't so scary when we know that the way of the Christian faith is the way of life through death. It is salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. So the scary parts aren't so scary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this evening and I ask that your grace would abound as we process these truths and as we consider this passage. I pray, Father, if our hearts are kind of recoiling from some of these ideas and thoughts and truths, I pray that you would give grace to soften them and that you would help us to process in a way that would produce your work in our lives. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live and to die and to rise again. We thank you for the hope that we have in him and the promises that find their yes in Jesus. And, and God, we pray to live lives of humble confidence of knowing that the scary parts of life in this world aren't so scary when you know the end of the story. Thank you, God, for telling us how the story ends. Thank you, God, for giving, a gl giving us a glimpse of our future in the person and the work of Jesus. Thank you, God, for securing our hope in Jesus. Thank you, God, for drawing our lives into Jesus, and I pray that you would continue, continue to do that in his name. Amen.